This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. It is Pledge Week here at Montana Public Radio, so we're bringing you a special edition of our Incentives and Instincts series with economist and friend Bryce Ward. Bryce, how are you today? I'm good, Justin. How are you doing? I am doing well. Signs of spring are here. Barely. Yeah, I know. It lingers, but uh, the days are getting longer at least. So today we're going to talk all about fake news. The broad question we'll consider is why our trust in media is so low when the quality and performance of media has arguably been improving. Bryce, let's set the stage. How has our trust in media declined over the last several years? Several decades. Several decades, uh, yes. You know, I mean, it's gone down, right? You know, I think, I can't remember exactly when the time of the, but, you know, and sometime when we were kids, yeah. you know, vast majorities of the people would have said they trusted the, quote, the media. Yeah, in 1972, 68% yes, you know, of 70 Americans- 70% was the number that I was going to throw out. So yeah, good. yeah, they said they trusted it a great deal or a lot. And in 2022, that percentage was 38%. So yeah, it's been a, there's been a big decline in our trust in media. Uh, so that's the descriptive fact, and sure. I guess we can go from there. Yeah, let's talk about why this has happened. There's a lot of factors. How have you kind of gotten your head around this downward trend in trust in media? Okay, so part of it's just, a decline. we just trust most institutions less. So there's some of that. But if we focus just specifically on well, what's changed in media? The big change in media is we went from a world in which distribution of information was scarce. Yes. You know, there were three broadcast television channels. There were, in most towns, maybe one or two newspapers. We didn't have blogs or uh, podcasts. There was radio, and you might have subscribed to a magazine or two. And yeah. that was, quote, the media. Yeah. Why was that the case? The case was it was hard to print. So if we're going to print a magazine or print a newspaper, right. that Technology. was expensive. And then the distribution of that printed material was also expensive, mm-hmm. right? I had to pay somebody to literally drive around and deliver this stuff. And then with respect to television, well, there, we had regulated airwaves. Yeah. Same with the radio. Yeah. And you know when we said, oh, you can have this television broadcast license, well, you have to do so much public you know, information. And there are all these, we regulated the distribution. So there was, we had limited the supply and the competition in that space. Sure. And we had fairness doctrine. Fairness doctrine. You had to split. If you were going to do opinion, you had to do it evenly, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I I can even remember the commercials when I was a kid, when the TV station licensing would come up. Yeah. They would be like, okay, well, you know, these are all the things we're doing. And you're like, right, Congress, or right, right, whoever saying that you like what we're doing. Because it was like, you know, they had to demonstrate sure. the public benefit of what they were doing. Yes. It was a different age. That's the benchmark of, I think, that we're going to, you know, that's when we were kids. That's what we're, you know, looking at and saying, well, what's changed since then? And, and we, we should add here too, uh, and there's myriad factors we'll go into, but. People trusted media more in those times. That's not to say media was performing better. The quality of the information that the average American was getting from mainstream media was not necessarily of higher quality. In fact, there's evidence, strong evidence, that media colluded with government much more frequently than it does now. Absolutely, right? So, you know, essentially what you have is you have this smaller supply side 
And yeah, it's much easier for them to collude. Yeah. And there may be even some incentives for them to collude. And, you know, they did whatever they did. They were gatekeepers and, you know, they were controlling us as the, you know, I think, you know, we're both from the 90s, right? It was the yeah. corporate media sure. controlling you and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And, you know, these were, there are downsides to that limited distribution, but there's downsides to what we're dealing with now. Yes. And what we're, you know, what are we dealing with now essentially is that, well, we made distribution effectively free. We can, if you have information, you can put it out there. And that means that there's much more competition in media. And in theory, I'm a, I love competition time, which is great. Competition should move us towards better. Right. Well, let's break down that competition a little bit deeper. So not only has distribution become easier, if not free, because of technological advancements, it's also allowed for competition on a variety of fronts. There's just more information. It's more fragmented and specific and matched with consumer preferences. But there's also a deeper competition or more intense competition for consumers' attention, driven a lot by social media and these delivery mechanisms that kind of use algorithms to serve people essentially what the algorithms think they want to see when they want to see it. So it's kind of on supply and demand side that competition is increasing. The problems that we see are on both sides. And I don't know which right. one we want to go start down first because supply and demand, of course, interact. Sure. But like, I think I'll start with demand uh, because it's the more fundamental problem. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental problem with, you know, in theory, Moving from information scarcity to information abundance. If you say, if you would ask like, you know, an undergraduate economics students and say, hey, we've relaxed this constraint. We've made the cost of information much lower. We should be strictly better off. Sure. We should just be swimming in the abundant information. And, yeah. you know, if you think about it, like we're old enough to remember like – Getting information was really hard. Oh, yeah. Going to the library, getting the Encyclopedia Britannica, looking up the thing. Like when I would write like reports as an, like, an elementary school sure. student, right? I was using my parents' college textbooks. That was what was available, right? Yeah. It was like, well, this, you got, we had this book. You know, there's got something in here. I wrote like a third grade. My third grade science project was on erosion. And my mom had some science textbook from college that had some sure. section on erosion. So I'm sure nothing had changed I, in the world of erosion. Know, yeah, since the <laughs> 60s to the mid-80s. That was information scarcity. So we're yeah. moving to information abundance, and that should be great. It's much easier for me to get the information that I need to make choices mm -hmm. or to shape me into the person that is the best available thing. And the problem is, it's not clear that we're capable of handling that kind of abundance. Okay. So us, we as consumers of media cannot We as a species. Okay. Right. And, and I think it's easier to think about this. I'll, I'll, I'll draw it back to information, but I want to take a little detour into diet, mm. right? Because effectively our problems with nutrition are the same problem. Yeah, yeah. I think we that's have, a great analogy. We have made calor tasty, calorie-rich food abundant. Mm -hmm. Now, not, again, not everybody has the same abundance. Of course. But in a relative sense, if you think about, you know, the 99.5% of humans' existence where we were hunter-gatherers, right, relative to, you know, I mean, I was just watching Castaway recently, right? Like Relative to what Tom Hanks is trying to do to gather food to survive, right? As a hunter-gatherer. Right. The like, labor to calorie ratio they, is much you know, lower. Like I can walk to the kitchen and there is a plethora of tasty, calorie-rich food that was designed to be addictive. Yeah. Not according to my daughters on any given day, no but, matter how frequently I go to the grocery store. But hey. You know, 
but yeah, I mean, like, there's always something, right? There, you know, there's been several good books recently on, you know, why is this such a problem for us, right? And, you know, there's several cool studies that have been both in humans and in animals, but the human one that I like, and this one's like decades old, but I'd only learned about it recently, right? It's like at some point they took people and they stuck them in a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. And they basically gave them like, you know, a drink that was bland and but had all the nutrition that you needed. And you could have as much of that as you wanted. Right. And they put these people in this controlled environment. And, you know, some people effectively drank the same amount of calories from that food as they consumed before. Okay. Typically, those were the leaner people. The more obese people basically just stopped eating, lost mm-hmm. a ton of weight. Right. And what this suggests, and I think other studies have found, is that some people are more susceptible to the richness of variety. Yes. It's just, it's in, you know, it's our neurochemistry. It's like this new drug. Right, the one that the new, I don't know, the new weight loss drug, I can't remember what it's called, right? Starts with an L, that's oh, yeah. Ozempic o- or something. Ozempic, whatever yeah. it is. But what does it do? Essentially, it targets the chemicals in your brain that kind of are that reward motivation center, and it basically just depresses them. So it's actually, what they're finding is it may actually work for addiction in a variety of forms, not just food. But you know, we as humans, when you give us abundance, some of us can handle it, but some of us don't appear to struggle, right? And it's that struggling that we see in all these other areas, whether it's drugs or food or, you know, we're now seeing it. You know, we've seen it in media for a long time, but it's now it's a new front in this war because we've succeeded. Sure. We have, you know, solved an an important scarcity problem. And now here we are. And it's like, oh, wait, what do I do with this? Right. And that's not to say that information is perfect. Not at all. But there is so much more information, the information you want more abundant, probably more accurate across that source of abundance. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about trust in media. Yeah, there's a problem. We've talked in the past about the pollution in the stream. Sure. And, you know, in some sense, it's not even clear that we're better off because now instead of having to go to the library and do all the extra work to find the information... Now I have to sift through bad information to find the good information, Mm -hmm. which is its own form of work, right? It is. And there's these algorithms and AIs that purportedly do it for us that are part of this problem as well. Yeah. And, you know, do I trust those algorithms? Even then, well, what is it feeding me? I mean, again, let's just take this out of the normal, normal sense of media, like, which is the news media, right? Like I had to buy a refrigerator recently. Okay. Do I trust the reviews online? Sure, wire like, cutter, consumer you know, reports. Like, who do I trust? Is, and yeah. who's telling me? What, you know, and at least for me, it's very stressful anytime <laughs> I have to buy something like this because it's a, like a big ticket item, and it's like, what, what, what information do I trust here? Yeah, the costs of screwing like, up a refrigerator are high. Yeah, you know, and but anyhow, so the point is, is that this, there's there's abundance of information. So a yeah, there's a pollution stream. There's a big cost of that. Right. But the but the the more dietary side is I can go get the information that I want. Mm. And I, you know, the line that I've been using a lot recently with respect to our struggles with abundance is it's a reverse of the Rolling Stone song, right? Instead of I can't always get what I want, but if I try somehow I can get what I need. Yes. It's well, now I can get what I want, but what if it's not what I need? Yeah, it is the opposite right? problem. And, and you know, this distinction between want and need, and you know, in in a simple economic theory, we'd say those those should be perfectly aligned. But the reason why it's why I did the detour into diet is it makes it very clear that for at least in some times and places, want and need are not the same. Yes. And 
the demand side problem that we have is demand moves to want. Mm-hmm. And what we're struggling with is, am I getting the information that I need? So let's break that down. When we're talking about want, we're talking about information that uh, generally conforms to our pre-existing position, right? It makes us feel better. And information that runs counter to the opposition narrative, right? So that creates a few different things. We, we sort of are shopping for confirmation bias or we're, sh- we're shopping as a function of our confirmation bias. But also it, it, it has created this whole ecosystem of content around complaining about the other side. Like if, if you watch an MSNBC segment or a show, it's generally two thirds about how awful Fox News is and the terrible things they said. And if you watch a Fox News show, it's often about all the terrible things that were said on on MSNBC. And, and those are catnip for this want that we have. It sort of supercharges that preference for information that makes us feel good. This is what the studies have found, right? And this is what the algorithms do to us, yes. is the things that engage us are the things that enrage us, yes. right? You know, And so as humans, we f- too frequently are not shopping for information to inform us. We are shopping for information to engage us. And the problem, if, if it were just innocuous, if engaging with information just didn't do anything to me, it wouldn't matter. The problem is that it does stuff to me, yes. right? I am a function of the information ecosystem in which I am around. And so part of that's just, look, it's giving me the information about choices, but it's also then shaping my preferences, my attitudes, my perceptions of the world that I live in. And that's where it becomes a problem to have both the pollution stream in there, but also then to have the information ecosystem responding to my wants and not to what I individually would say I need. Yeah. But then, you know, more importantly, because this is a collective, you know, you can think of our, the information ecosystem as a commons, right? We end up with tragedy of commons. We're, we're trashing all of us pursuing our individual interests leads us to a place that is not necessarily the publicly socially optimal outcome yeah and sort of to further torture the food metaphor i mean food deserts are a growing problem places where even if if people have the desire and the energy to go find good food that they can't they don't have a supermarket or a restaurant that provides high quality food is the internet creating an information desert in a way or I wouldn't use the same thing because obviously the internet means that I can get anything I want. That's true. Right? So it's just know, harder it, it, to find. It's harder to find. What it does is it creates more things for me to sift through. Okay. Right. Is it creates such a, a an abundance of junk food. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's one of the you know another one of these dietary studies, right? Like I think this one was done with animals. I don't know if it was rats or whatever it was, but like well, first thing is they learned that the fastest if you wanted to for research purposes you wanted to fatten a rat up. The fastest way to do it, they tried engineering also. The fastest way was just give it human di- a human diet. Um, but the second thing about this is that you know what they do is one of these studies they basically just kept adding more f- options. Okay, right. And as you added more, you know you can satiate yourself on you know okay here's one kind of junk food. But as, as I add more options, I keep well now that diversity of options just means I get more sucked into eating more because sure. I'm, I'm the way the hardwiring in here is yep. is. I, oh well, that's different. It's why we eat dessert, right? You could you could bring another 
slab of steak out. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not hungry like, for that. I'm, I'm not hungry, hungry for that. For, I'm hungry for chocolate. Well, I'm hungry for something different. Yeah, exactly. Right? Well, chocolate is different because it's actually literally addictive. But like, <laughs> it's why tapas is so fun. Right? Yeah, good point. It's like, oh, well, they're just going to bring me more buffet, right? I guess that's the more, you know, the, the more American thing. And this is the morass of abundance, mm-hmm. right? The, the problem of abundance is it's very easy to get yourself lost in abundance sure. or to gorge yourself in abundance. But the question is, is, well, the thing that I need, right? Am I getting that or am I getting lost in, you know, oh, hey, look at all the stuff that I can enjoy. And, you know, I think the internet does that, right? It makes it very easy for me to not do, get the things that I need. And some of that's just the direct thing that I need. But the thing that I think that we're learning is there were all these kind of ancillary benefits that came from the constrained choices, right? Mm-hmm. The one that I've been thinking against a slightly different form of media, but just television. You know, we used to watch television with other people. Yeah, right. It was a communal event. It was a communal event, both within the household, but also with friends. Sure. And, you know, let's like, gather to watch Seinfeld. Seinfeld Everybody like, literally together, or the all, evening news, or whatever you know, it was. Well, you know, but you, yeah, I mean, for us, it was Friends and Seinfeld. Like, sure. I, I almost every episode of Friends I watched with friends. So I was talking with my college roommates about they have older kids, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Yeah, everybody just disappears. Most nights, it's four people, four screens." Uh, and I was like, "Huh." Like, I remember literally, I mean, like, yeah, we lived together, but even one of my college roommates I was friends with from when I was five, like, I would go to his house on Thursdays to watch Seinfeld. In some sense, that appears to be a product of constrained choices, right? It was like, oh, it was on. It's only on at this time. Yeah, and at that, it's interesting, too. Like, in that moment, we were feeling a sense of abundance relative to prior prior media ecosystem. So this this abundance thing is you don't really know it when you have it. Although I think we're sort of realizing it to some degree. I mean, when, when people sort of fill out these surveys and say they don't trust the media, I don't think they're acknowledging that actually there's there's a lot more higher, you know, trustworthy sources of information out there. They're just harder to find. So it's hard to know people's perception of this abundance issue and whether they actually acknowledge it as a driver of current behavior. Yeah, and you know, I mean, maybe this is where we segment to the segue to the supply side, yeah. right? Which is that, yeah, I mean, look, the reality is is that information is more abundant. Yeah, if you want to learn the truth about anything, to the extent that there is quote truth, but if you want to learn the facts yeah. about whatever happened, if you want to, it is available to mm-hmm. you. Right? It is absolutely available to you. Now, it may be work to find it. It, it may, may be work. work to have to sift through the layers of garbage that have you know been layered on top of it. But I can literally just like sit at home on a computer screen and get to the most advanced information about any topic that you want. We have abundance. So if you want truth in media, it's there. So why is trust falling if there's better information? Well, A... That competition piece, mm-hmm. like, well, those guys are saying things I don't like. You know, and, and, and some of this is also a byproduct of a whole segment of the media, talk radio, cable news, you know, right-wing media, basically exempted itself from the media. Yeah. Right? Uh, by pos- uh, Explicitly. Yeah. But it's still Posi- media, right? Exactly. <laughs> but know? by positioning themselves as the, the sort of anti-establishment, anti-liberal bias, however you want to frame it. But that was an explicit market position and an ingenious sort of um, way to grab market share. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the you know, but if we're saying, well, what, what is the media? 
Right. That's still part of the media. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, but that's part of, you know, but there was this kind of explicit attempt to, and, you know, and this is part of it. If you're saying, well, what's driving that decline? That's almost entirely conservatives. Mm-hmm. Liberals still trust, quote, the media, right? Or at least the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it. Right. Right. The decline has been, is there, but not nearly as stark. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, in some sense, this is just a marketing ploy. Yeah. Right. So what we're really capturing is the, oh, yeah, the marketing was effective. They're still consuming media. The people who, quote, don't trust the media are consuming a form of media. And if, if you explicitly went to liberals and said, do you trust conservative media? Yeah, they would say no. They way. would say, heck no. Right. Yeah. And so I think, but it's just the it's that competition between them. And again, and what we're seeing with the Fox News depositions. Yes. Is Fox News is very explicitly responding to the demand, mm-hmm. right? That was the whole issue, right? It's, well, we can't say these things. We can't say that the election was fine because, quote, our, our viewers will leave us. Yeah, it's bad for the stock price. Yeah. And I think, too, we sh- to be fair, we should acknowledge that you see this effect a little bit playing out with the Wuhan lab leak theory. Right now, we've got federal agencies going on the record saying the most likely explanation for the covid pandemic has been you know the wuhan lab right and, and for a long time that was politically taboo for anyone on the left to acknowledge as even a possibility right you were dismissed as a racist or whatever if, if you even entertained that as a possibility and as we're seeing reporting on these acknowledgments of this theory being a likely cause institutions that have been you know traditional media or left-leaning media have been a little reluctant to kind of report on that uh, full-throatedly yeah and look and it's not just that right i mean we can go through it like the iraq war yep right you know well that was a sales job of you know that was widely accepted in the media oh you know they're the financial crisis right oh this is a we need to be fit you know the fact that we were cutting spending during the recovery from the great recession is one of the great errors in economic policy but that was what the, you know that was the mainstream idea you know and so you know we we are all all of us are in this human bucket we are all subject to these human flaws and the problem that we're seeing in our media because it is now more abundant and it is more competitive when there's only three channels on one newspaper they play it down the middle. Absolutely. You have to. They, that's the that's how you get market share. It's a way to get the most customers. Right? When you're in a long tail environment, you know, any niche view can find some form of an audience, right? And, you know, and whatever works, works. And again, that's all driven by want, mm-hmm. not need. And that that gap, that fundamental disconnect between a marketplace which is very, very good at serving up what we our revealed preference suggests that we want. If you ask us, we'll say we don't want of it. Of course, yeah, we want the um, truth. We want, we, yeah, I want information and all this kind of stuff. But you know, what actually gets the the media company money is when you give me things that enrage me. Yep, and then I keep watching. And you know, it's bad for me as a media company to serve you up information that makes you the consumer mad. Mm-hmm. Right, which is why you end up pushing towards polarized media. Yeah. Because it's really hard, you know, to be a straight down the middle media organization without making me mad. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A new angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications 
and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Kelly Webster, Chief of Stuff at the University of Montana, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about trust in media. So let's press on this you know, want versus need. So the presumption in this line of thinking is that what we need, the collective we, is accurate, truthful information. That, you know, I think you and I agree that a, a more well-informed populace, if the, an agreed upon truth is the best in the best interest of a democracy. The best information isn't this is, oh, the, this is... You know, we all agree that this is the right choice to make. Right. Right. You know, given the same information, you and I could say, no, that's not a good trade off or not. So it's not to say that information and choice go together. But I think, you know, I am still enough of an enlightenment thinker. And I think our system is built on enlightenment principles. And look, just as an individual. Right. So individually, if you know, again, let's just go back to something that isn't politically charged. Go back to the appliance. Go back to buying the refrigerator. Yeah. You want right? to know what the best appliance is? I actually think it's not clear that all the extra information has made us better off than we yeah. were in the 50s. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, there is so much crap to sort through in terms of trying to evaluate stuff. And the companies keep changing the model so fast. Sure. Right? What I want is like, yeah, I want a long-term study. I want to know that, you know... Like, you know, the reason I had to buy a refrigerator is because the last one's the, the water line broke and it caused thousands of dollars of water damage to my mm, house. That sounds familiar. And when I, the restoration people are like, oh, yeah. And the insurance company is like, oh, it was a water line. It was a refrigerator. Yeah, of course. It's like the most common thing that they see. Yeah. And yet, the insur- you know, to me, as an economist, the insurance company should be sitting there saying, well, we're going to do long-term studies on refrigerator brands. Yeah. And we're going to, you know recruit all these households into a sample and basically we're going to record it and we're going to basically put out information and say, don't buy these refrigerators. And then all of us benefit because our home insurance rates go down. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, you know, that information, in spite of all this information abundance is not the thing that I'm going on and saying, okay, you know, this refrigerator is a 2% chance of dying within 10 years, which is what I want. You know, I want to know how long it's going to last and how much the likelihood it's going to break are. So Bryce, there's a big mess here, right? And the question is, like, how do we improve this media environment? I mean, I will say it is Pledge Week. We've got great sources of public media here in Montana, Montana Public Radio, Yellowstone Public Radio, Montana Free Press, etc. So there are great outlets there. But like systemically, how do we are there any pathways you see to improving this um, dysfunctional equilibrium that we're in right now? On the demand side, we have to create better humans. Right. And that's hard because yes. it's what the dietary stuff – and it's not to say that the, the, the mechanisms are identical in media and in diet. You know, food is a more fundamentally – you know, I'm biologically hardwired to collect energy. I may not be the same with information. But, you know, I mean, it's, in some sense, to the extent that we can create better humans – we need to create better humans who, who we, so we can align want and need. Yeah, and I think part of that is teaching media literacy. You know, we have grown into this abundant information landscape, as you've well described, but I don't think along with that we've given students the tools to navigate it, to understand, like, hey, you don't just go 
Google anything all the time. I mean, there was a general rule of thumb back in the day that like Wikipedia is not a good source of information, although now it it kind of is a pretty reliable source of information because it's a free market clearinghouse, right? But, you know, there there isn't media literacy is not taught in our in our schools very often, and, and maybe it should be. You know, I actually feel better about young people's ability to deal with this than old people. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, it's, it's... They're natives in this ecosystem. They're natives in this ecosystem. They're adapted to it, right? You know, it's the people who are most easily scammed online are older. Oh, yeah. You know, it's because they just, they didn't, they didn't it's develop... on the internet, the, it's got to be true. They didn't develop the tools as it was, you know, when they were at a younger, more pliable stage of their yeah. life. Yeah. That said, you know, yeah, but still, we still need, obviously, we need more, we need to create better consumers, right? You know, and that's hard. That's hard work. So if we can't really do much in, you know, to the extent that we're kind of hardwired into this, you know, then we have to then move to the harder part, which is, well, yeah, we got to deal with the supply side. We have to treat it as a commons, right? We have to go back to this pollution metaphor, which is, look, our information ecosystem matters and we can't keep letting it just get trashed, right? We have to figure out a way which preserves the advantage of abundance, preserves competition, preserves all the things that we like, but doesn't create a system which is leading us to misperception of the reality of the world. Reality matters, right? Like, you know, and it wouldn't matter if, again, if we were susceptible to our feelings and our judgments and how we behave in the real world. You know, for a long time it was, if you wanted the real news about what was happening, just read the business page, right? Because businesses didn't care about your political idea, you know. Yeah, they need to make correct decisions. They have to make the correct decision. And what we want is for everybody to be in that world of like, oh, I just need to know what the correct decision is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that the part of getting better humans is about getting people to see like, yes, you know, don't get tricked by your emotions. Don't get tricked by engagement. Don't get tricked into a caricature of the real world. And we've talked about this in the past. You know, this is part of why, you know, you also have to just fight this with not media. Right. But fight, you know, if you fight this with engage with, with the real world, all of it. Right. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and that's part of the another part of the supply side. Right. Is we have to make it so that people spend less time in these information ecosystems, which are polluted. If you go out in the real world, like you can interact with reality. Your perception will be closer to reality because I just interacted with somebody and they were identified as something different than me and they were fine. So are there signs for hope? I think about the Supreme Court case involving Section 230 and some of the discussion about antitrust legislation in the media and so forth. I mean, I think these things are are, – I'm not so confident that these will land on the right solutions, but they are potentially signs that – our policymakers and our legal regime are at least thinking about trying to make this ecosystem less messy. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, we've been down the path long enough. And, you know, I feel like every new innovation that was supposedly great kind of goes down this path. And eventually we were like, oh, wait, it's not just all benefits, there are real costs. And now we have to figure out how to mitigate those costs, you know, and that was what. You know, 1970s pollution litigate, you know, legislation and judicial rulings were basically right. about. Yeah, uh, I was like, oh wait, this wasn't really, you know, all these great, you know, new products were not all that great. They created some real byproducts. We're in that phase. You know, I think there are good things about them, but there are bad things about them, and we need to figure out how to tamp down on the bad things about them. And so we, yeah, we hope, you know, so as we figure it out, hopefully we will move. The problem is, is that the politicians that we have currently. We have been in this system for long enough that they are all native to this warped environment. Yeah. 
and fewer and fewer of them are survivors from the prior environment. And so it's unclear if you have the right people in place to be like, oh, yeah, this is bad because they are they benefit from the system as it is. Right. So in our remaining time, Bryce, short of these sort of systemic policy level solutions coming through or Supreme Court cases or rulings or whatever, short of that, like what recommendations would you have for the listener on how to, you know, fight the want versus need temptation and try to become a better consumer of media or demand, you know, how do we create better humans on the demand side? Look, the first question, the first thing you have to just do is you have to be aware of the fact that you're still a human. Yes. And you are subject to – and again, I want to be clear. It's very easy to be like, oh, it's only these other people that are subject to yeah, these biases. Yeah, yeah. We are all subject to these biases, right? That is the, that is the magic of the algorithm. That's mm-hmm. why it works as well as it does. When I'm mad about some media and thinking of punishing it – Right by not subscribing or you know not going to that website is you know you have to ask yourself well is it because it's an unreliable source or is it because it's telling me something I don't want to hear yes and yeah look if it's an unreliable source then yeah I don't want you to go to it I want you to move away from it and you know move towards media that is more informative you know the the nutritious media but like sometimes. It's the media that's saying eat your vegetables that I'm like, you know, we just all go back to being kids. Yeah. Right. You're telling me to eat my vegetables. I don't like what you're telling me. (laughs) I don't and I'm mad. Don't punish media because it tells you things that you don't want to hear. Punish media because it tells you things that are false. Yeah. I I think along those lines, I have three recommendations to the listener. And the first is along the lines of what you mentioned there. Yeah. If you're reading or watching or listening to something that's making you uncomfortable, Stick with it because chances are this, that discomfort stems from a disagreement or a view that it's wrong or incorrect or biased. And sort of stick with, stick through it, consume it, and then make your opinion afterward. Don't give up on it. The other thing is understand the source. And you mentioned this a moment ago, Bryce. So understand who's producing the piece, who's distributing it, what incentives do they have. And within a piece of media, if you see an unnamed source, Think through like who would who would have an interest in being an unnamed source here? Uh, not that unnamed sources are bad, but they're unnamed for a reason. And a media organization allows an anonymous source for a reason. But try to figure out who that source is and who would benefit from saying what that source is saying. And that might help you gain some clarity on what the piece is really telling you. Anyway, those are kind of my rules of thumb. I don't know how useful they are to you, but give them a try. Sounds good. Cool, Bryce. Well, this has been fun. Get out and support sources of public media, Montana Public Radio in particular. And uh, again, thanks for spending some time with us today, Bryce. And I look forward to our next one. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49. A generous gift from UM alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. 
Social media by AJ Williams and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot and see you next time.